Do you know the return of Jesus will solve all of the things that burn us now? All we have to do is run the race with endurance until the Lord Jesus returns, and then we're home free. Until then, we have lots of work to do as salt and light. So we have been uh, going through the book of Judges. You know how I decided on Judges? I'm going to blame it on Mark Triplett. He's one of the wonderful members of our great media team. And we were just talking, I'll never do that again, uh, with Mark, and he suggested judges. This was some time ago. I think I didn't know what I was getting into. I haven't found it a very pleasant journey. I don't know what your response is. It's heavy. It's a glimpse into human nature devoid of a relationship with God. When you live life autonomously from the King of Kings, you get what we read about in the book of Judges. And so we're coming down the home stretch. We're in Judges chapter 20 tonight. Lord willing, we'll finish it next week. Let me just refresh your memory about the sordid tale we were introduced to last time. There was a Levite. You know now that those are a specially called upon group of people from the tribe of Levi, and they served as spiritual leaders of ancient Israel. This particular Levite was traveling on his way home. He and his, the text told us, concubine, and I mentioned to you that's kind of a sort of a mistress, a kind of a legal professional designated substitute for your primary wife. He and this particular second class citizen, his concubine, uh, were traveling home. They stopped along the way and they went to a place called Gibeah, which is near Jerusalem. While there at night, the men of the city, if you can imagine this, were pounding on the door demanding that this Levite, guest in the city, come out so that they could have relations with him. And so the Levi, in response, decided uh, an alternative that might appease them was to literally push this lady, this concubine, out the door uh, for them to do to her what they chose to do. And they did. They abused her all through the night, the result of which was that by the next morning, she uh, passed away. She died. Well, then her Levite sort of pseudo-husband, uh, he took her body, and in a very gruesome way, he uh, cut it up into 12 pieces and sent the portions to the 12 tribes of Israel, a gruesome, grotesque symbol to try to arouse their sense of justice so that they would take revenge. And we are told in now chapter 20 that the Israelites were motivated from Dan to Beersheba. You see that expression frequently in the Old Testament. Dan was the northernmost uh, extent of Israel, and that day bear Sheba, the southernmost, and so that meant the totality of the land was covered and all of the residents therein. It's a distance, in case you're curious, of about 150 miles. So they gathered together at a place called Mizpah, and it was just a few miles from Gibeah where this horrific crime took place. 
In fact, the text tells us 400,000 armed men, men with the sword, military men gathered together. They represented not 12 of the tribes, only 11, because the 12th tribe exercised the option not to show up and join in. Those were the Benjamites. Why did they not come? Uh, Well, the perpetrators of this horrific crime were from the tribe of Benjamin. And in a very sick way, the Benjamites decided not to hold their own responsible for this crime against this uh, horrifically abused woman. So they didn't show up. But there were 400,000 participants from the other 11 tribes. Now the Levite stepped up and began to speak. He had everybody's attention. He gave a presentation. It was quite effective, but quite slanted. In it, you could read this a little more carefully on your own in Judges 20. In his presentation, he very deliberately uh, denied any wrongdoing nor culpability on his part. For instance, he very strategically left out of the story the fact that he, in my opinion, in a very cowardly way, pushed his concubine out to be ravaged by this mob so as to save himself. He left that part out. Anyway, he gave his speech, and it had the desired effect because those 400,000 soldiers were ready to go on the attack in order to have revenge. They worked out a plan, and it was that one out of 10 of them, 10%, would function sort of as supply sergeants, meaning 90% would go direct into the heat of battle against the Benjamites, while the supply sergeants would be ones responsible for uh, feeding them, that kind of thing. So they sent word next to the tribe of Benjamin, asking them to uh, turn over these who participated in, well, it was a gang rape. Hand them over that they may be delivered to justice. The Benjamites, however, as I mentioned, refused to cooperate. They refused to surrender these guilty parties. And in so doing, the entire tribe became complicit and implicated in the crime. Uh, Folks, when there's evil in the camp, and it is not dealt with, then everyone is responsible for letting it go. The Benjamites decided not to turn over their fellow tribesmen, but instead they decided to oppose and enter into conflict with their own brothers in order to protect the guilty parties. It could happen. It's a sad thing. In other words, their loyalty to their brothers exceeded the facts exceeded justice, and their loyalty to their own exceeded loyalty to God and to his commandments. Uh, Folks, you can get an idea of the moral decay in this day when, again, we see lived out in that day this haunting pattern in the book. It was a day in which everyone simply did what was right in his own eyes. So instead of responding to this wickedness with an act of justice, the Benjamites attempted to defend the wicked men of Gibeah. So Benjamin rallied 26,700 troops, but they were greatly outnumbered. You could do the math. They arrogantly thought they could defend themselves against the combined 
uh, army of the 11 tribes, which, as we mentioned, numbered 400,000. Now the Benjamites, again, a little too stuck in their own arrogance and self-confidence, thought since their territory was hilly, they could effectively defend it, uh, even against um, a large army, thinking that a large army would be of no advantage in this hilly terrain. Not only that, they had 700 special forces, you might call them. They were all left-handed, and they were expert in the use of the slingshot. It was a piece of leather or cloth, two strings, that's all, attached to it. And if you were good at it, boy, you can wind that thing up and you could accurately let it go and the stone in it could uh, be released at speeds up to 90 miles an hour. You may think about this, a major league pitcher, few can pitch at 100 miles an hour. And so here's these ordinary guys, left-handed guys. Uh, slinging this slingshot, there would be a stone. It would be similar to the one used, do you remember, when David slew Goliath? So the Benjamites thought, we got hilly terrain, we got 700 really equipped special forces, we can beat up on the 400,000. Now at this point, the 11 tribes, they decided, oh, you know what? We probably should make recourse to God. After we've worked out our own plan, maybe we should God a deal got in a little bit, and so they went to him, and they uh, asked him this, uh, oh God, which tribes of the 11, which of the tribes should go up first against Benjamin? Isn't it interesting that they do not ask God the more fundamental question, should we go up against Benjamin at all? They already determined it to be the right thing. Remember, this was a day in which everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, God responded, and he said, sent Judah first. Why Judah? Well, because the deceased lady was from the tribe of Judah, so it sort of made sense. So they gathered together and they attacked the Benjamites on day one, and lo and behold, 22,000 members of the 11 tribes were killed on that first day. As a result, they were devastated. They were crushed. They thought for sure victory was assured based upon their numbers alone. So they wept before God at this point. And then they asked him, oh God, should we go up against the Benjamites again? And God said, yes. So at this point, they turned to God a little late, but they did. They weep now, an indication of the seriousness of their prayer. God gave a very clear answer, go back up against the Benjamites. So they did on the second day, and on that day, much to their surprise, they lost 18,000 more men. Now, I'm sure they're asking, as you and I would, what is going on? Oh, God, you authorized this. We asked. You said, go back up against them. What are you telling us? Why did you give us this response? What are we doing wrong? And so they wept now before God again. And they added to it fasting. They didn't only weep, they fasted. And they also offered to God two kinds of offerings, a burnt offering and a peace offering. They sought the Lord's guidance again, and he very clearly and specifically told them, go up against the Benjamites a third time, and on this time, I will give you the victory. And so they did. 
They went up against the Benjamites on the third day, and in fact, the Lord kept his word, and the sons of Israel killed almost all of the Benjamites. They wiped out 25,000 of the Benjamites. They burned down the city of Gibeah and many other Benjamite cities as well. Okay, those are 48 verses. I kind of summed it up. I told it as a story because of the length of the text. But now this question, so what? What are we to glean from the story? How does it apply to us? So let me, in our remaining time, try to answer that question. God instructed the 11 tribes to go into battle, and God allowed them to lose. On the first day, they lost 22,000, and on the second day, even though God gave clear direction to go up, then they lost 18,000, which begs the question, do you mean to tell me God would actually lead us into this kind of loss and defeat? Folks, I have to give you what may be a surprising answer. The answer is yes. Now, why would God lead, deliberately lead his own people into this kind of loss? Well, the answer is because he has something better in mind sometimes than our success and victory, as we count it, and even than smooth sailing. But what could be better than winning in the game of life? What could possibly be better than smooth sailing? Well, here it is. Dependence on Almighty God is far better than self-confidence, self-reliance, a sense of self-sufficiency, all of which we have to battle against. And our loving Father is so interested in us running to him so as to see his faithfulness and provision on our behalf. He's willing even to allow us to come to the end of ourselves to experience a measure of loss and even defeat at times so that we remember how limited we are and how unlimited our Father is. What God is pleased with is that we cling to him and not depend on our own wit and wisdom. Now, because this concept is so unnatural to us, you know, what comes naturally to us is things like pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, uh, lean on yourself, uh, believe in yourself. That's the opposite of the biblical message. And so because that's so unnatural for us, uh, let me try to enhance the point by um, reminding you of an actual biblical episode where this principle is borne out. It concerned the great Apostle Paul. This is recorded, I think you'll remember, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me just read to you a few verses, beginning in verse 7 of that passage. Paul says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, God entrusted that apostle with great revelations that he didn't release directly to all people. Well, man, that can really puff you up and think you're something special. So Paul said, because of the surpassing greatness of what God revealed to me, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Why would a loving father do that? Paul says it was a messenger of Satan to torment me. Why? To keep me from exalting myself. Can you see the natural human inclination to puff ourselves up? Concerning this, Paul said, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, 
for power is perfected in weakness. And there you see, that substantiates the point I'm trying to make. Yes, sometimes our loving Father will allow us to be weak because in it we're really strong in Christ's strength. Paul realized this and therefore he said most gladly, therefore, I rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content. Are you? Would you be well content with these things? I'm well content, says Paul, with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. Why? For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I understand the words, but that thing doesn't stick with me. When I'm strong, I'm strong. What do you mean when I'm weak, I'm strong? That's one of the biblical paradoxes we have to get used to. It's absolutely true. It's the opposite of what we think. When we're strong in our own strength, when we're self-reliant, self-sufficient, self-confident, when we are believing in ourselves, that militates against dependence on God. And when we don't depend upon God, we can't see God come through for us. Therefore, God is in the business of reducing us, not building our ego up, but actually challenging it. So like Paul, we throw ourselves upon his strength and rejoice in it, and we do not exalt ourselves. So God used affliction to humble Paul, to reduce Paul's tendency towards self-exaltation and self-confidence, and to motivate Paul to depend upon him. In the same manner, God used the defeat of the 11 tribes to humble them so as to motivate them to turn to him. So they went into battle initially without consulting God. They were defeated and they wept. And then they went into battle on the second day and they suffered defeat a second time. This time, they not only wept, they fasted. They not only fasted, they offered sacrifices. Their weeping and fasting well, those were acts of repentance. The burnt offering symbolized their consecration to God. And the peace offering symbolized their interest in restored fellowship with him. Folks, they suffered loss. They experienced pain. And the pain caused them to run to God. Be honest. What causes you most to run to God? Let me be, be honest, it isn't smooth sailing, it's pain. I remember the words of David way back in Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Furthermore, he said, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. I'm not proud of this, but I might as well tell you what motivates me most to run to Almighty God is pain and distress the reason why I'm not ashamed to tell you that is you're just like me. God knows our human nature, and therefore he's trying to overcome it by even allowing us a kind of loss and sometimes painful experiences so that we're motivated to run to him. So the Israelites went out with too much self-confidence. Their defeat led them to a drastic but necessary loss of self-confidence. And so after two days of loss and defeat, God sent them back into battle again this time. The third time, however, he sent them out with a promise of victory, and that's what they experienced. And I hope you realize in the end there will be victory in Jesus. Don't give up hope. This is all true of us as well. God allows us to the experience of painful self-confidence reducing times. You know, I think we're in it. 
you know, this coronavirus thing, I don't know about you, I'm kind of, I had enough. Uh, but it's not up to me. I don't know when it's going to end. Or, and you know, here's the deal. Nobody knows how to bring it to an end. Do you realize that? I think well-intentioned people are doing their best to try to get rid of this, but they can't do it. You know what the message of the coronavirus is? <laughs> You're weak. You're frail. You're limited. You're just a creature. Isn't it time to look to me, the creator? That's not punishment from God. That's a loving God trying to woo us unto himself. He wants to be depended on. He doesn't get tired. You know what he says? Come to me. What an invitation. Who? All who are weary. You can't, you won't run to God when you're self-confident. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you a lecture. No, I'll give you rest. You'll find rest for your souls. Now, now, since it is so difficult for us to get this concept in our brains that the best thing is for us to be reduced, not built up, I, I, I want to offer, as we draw to a close, just one further biblical illustration, uh, again, that you're familiar with. This, this one way back in the Old Testament, Genesis. You remember Jacob? The name itself means deceiver. It characterized his character, quite manipulative, quite uh, effective in using deception as a strategy. Here's a guy who relied on his own wit and wisdom, quite self-confident about working things out without recourse to God. Well, one day he, he had deceived his brother Esau. You know about this. Well, one day he finds out Esau is coming and he gets a little nervous about it. Jacob does. He was anticipating that his brother would seek revenge. And so he does not run to God, you see. He runs to his own brain, his own self-confidence. He looks to his own resources and he comes up to a plan to appease his brother. He had a bunch of stuff. He was rich, livestock, and he had a big family. And so he decides on this plan. I'll divide them all up and send them to my brother in installments so, so that by the time he gets to me, having seen all these gifts I sent to him, it might appease him. He won't be angry and he won't seek revenge. That's what he does. He does not look to God at all. He relies self-confidently on himself. Jacob is self-reliant. Jacob is self-confident. Jacob respected Esau's strength, but apparently he didn't respect the strength of his own God. And so after sending all he had to his brother Esau, we are told this, then, then, Jacob was left alone. Uh, I don't think he liked it. Now he's totally apart from all he ever depended on. All his wealth and relationships, gone. He's left alone alone and he didn't like it but he needed it so to you and I we need the experience of being stripped maybe of all our devices so that we are painfully left alone with almighty God and he loves us enough to bring us to that point and then we read back there in Genesis it's chapter 32 you should read it on your own it says, a man wrestled with him until daybreak. No time to go into this now, but the man wasn't a man. The man was an angel, and the angel wasn't an ordinary angel. The angel was an angel of the Lord. Folks, that's called a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. In case you're wondering, what did he do before he entered our space-time dimension? Uh, 
in Bethlehem where he was born. <laughs> he always was and he was always active and running things. And so it was the Lord, in my opinion, who is uh, wrestling with Jacob. Notice Jacob is not wrestling with him. He's wrestling with Jacob. Why? Because God loves us so much, he's willing to wrestle with those of us who are his so as to give, he, give us a healthy dose of our own inadequacy and need for him. Jacob put up a good fight. He still had much fight in him, you see. In other words, much self-reliance, much self-confidence. And so the battle went on all night until he could be emptied of self. And then the angel, we are told, touched the socket of Jacob's thigh such that it was dislocated. Folks, God loves us so much, he will even allow us to be crippled, dislocated, in order for him to get a hold of our heart. Sometimes, therefore, God must simply dislocate our plans, our lives, yeah, even our bodies, Yet God is able and willing to use all manner of things to move us from self-reliance to dependence on him. If coronavirus is doing that, then we ought to thank God for it. Thank you, O oh God, for moving me to greater dependence and reliance on you. In Jacob's case, nothing worked, only dislocation. Therefore, he had to be weakened in an area of strength. The socket of one's thigh is a very strong part of the human anatomy. Uh, Jacob was made weak. He was broken by God. Would a loving God do that? Yeah, yeah. Because his is not a pampering love. His is a perfecting love. And so God would do it because we cannot be greatly used by God until we are broken by God. I don't like that. But it's true, and we can trust our Father for it. Therefore, God brings us again and again to breaking points. Do you feel that you're at a breaking point now? The coronavirus, our isolation from one another, many other things going on. Maybe one day we'll rise up and thank God for it all because being broken has reduced our sense of self-reliance and self-confidence and we're running to Jesus for help. And so God blessed Jacob in the very place in which he wounded him such that for Jacob, the place of wounding became the place of blessing. And the text says, Genesis 32, the sun rose upon him and he was limping on his thigh. In other words, for the rest of his life, Jacob walked with a limp. And I bet you Jacob would say, if we could hear from him now, it was better for me to limp through life, trusting God and depending on him, than to strut through life, puffed up with an unrealistic sense of my own self-sufficiency. Those who strut through life are eventually going to be brought down by a loving God who has to persuade us we can't, but he can. And the people whom God has greatly used throughout biblical history are the ones who limp across the finish line. Are you limping? You're in good shape. Do you feel dislocated? Do not despair. 
I think there'll come a day when folks like you and I, all of us, will say, oh God, I should have trusted you more. For even in those times that produced a limp, you were up to good. You are so jealous of the spirit you have made to dwell in us. You will use anything to motivate us to cling to you for blessing. Folks, the greatest of saints have limped through life struggling to follow Jesus. You're not a victim who's alone. You will end up being a trophy of God's grace. And that's what he's after. He doesn't want us crossing the finish line, taking credit for it. By wit or wisdom, by determination and perseverance, I made it. Oh, no. He wants us to be trophies, not of our own self-sufficiency, but of his grace. I made it because of the grace of almighty God. Are you deeply hurt in these days? Can you realize now you have good biblical support for it? Out of hurt, God can do something marvelous and wonderful in your life if only you will let him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Don't you love that song? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. What do you do? <clears throat> Look full in his wonderful face. What happens? And the things of earth. What happens? They will grow strangely dim. How? In the light of his glory and grace. Thank you, Father. Not just for redeeming us, but adopting us. Thank you for wanting us to be in an intimate relationship with you to such extent you'll spare nothing to persuade us how much we need you, not just for the forgiveness of sins, <laughs> but for everything in life. Oh God, I pray you would rid us of undue self-confidence, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, Cause us to be truly Christ-centered, not just to remove the penalty of sin, but to help us win victory over the sin of horrific self-confidence. Oh, God, our confidence is that in the fact that we belong to you, there will be victory in Jesus. And we will each be trophies of your grace. That really is our heart's desire Therefore, thank you, O oh God, at times even for causing a dislocation of our plans, health, perhaps other things, wishes, dreams, for the sake of a greater good. What's the greater good? To have you in an intimate way, to be closer to you, to have a sense of need to cling to you, just as Jacob did for blessing. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your patience. You understand we don't get this stuff. We have to be reparented by you, and we thank you so much for your willingness to do so until the time when we see you face to face. And everything that is inexplicable to us now will make perfect sense because you are both sovereign and you are good no matter what. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.